0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is the 380th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa, is going to talk about his book. Blackface Nation, Race, Reform, and Identity of American Popular Music, 1812 to 1925. The history busters for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The theme sh- song for our show is titled "Kayla's Theme, which has been written
0: and performed
1: by Mark Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker.
0: This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Danarin. And today we're talking about the book, Blackface Nation, Race Reform and Identity in American Popular Music, 1812 to 1925, with Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa. Welcome to the show, Brian.
2: Uh, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: We are very excited. So let's start out with the, with the easy or obvious one. Um, can you tell us why you picked this particular title for your book?
2: Uh, Well, actually, it was kind of a long story on the title. Um, It took a long time to write the book because it was about, it ended up being about a lot of different themes in popular music. But um, I was going to call, or I wanted to call the book Racism the Musical. But my press (laughs) thought that that title Um, might have kind of been a little tone-deaf with um, current political movements, this kind of thing. And so um, they changed the title. Well, they asked me to come up with a different title, and I came up with Blackface Nation. Um, And really what the book, the title kind of represents um, the struggle in the book, the main theme in the book, which is kind of a... um, it's a struggle between two different genres of popular music in the 19th century, which would be kind of reform music on one hand, which is kind of a music based on uplift um, and kind of the idea of making people better. And then blackface minstrelsy on the other hand, which is about kind of um, kind of invoking uh, a lower kind of earthier version of yourself Um, And so that type of music, blackface, my argument is kind of blackface music, was the music that kind of won in this struggle in America. And so it became kind of the dominant music, um, I argue, in the 19th century, which carried over into the 20th century and even into the present.
1: Okay. Uh, The next question is is, uh, 1812 to 1925. Uh, Why was the year 1812 did you consider to be the starting point for your book?
2: Uh, That's, yeah, that, that gets into um, the, the focus of the book is, is on popular music and popular culture. And my argument is kind of that prior to about 1812, uh, you're really talking about folk culture um, and you're talking about kind of localized cultures. um, And so, there's a lot of a lot of music before that period, but it's not standardized, and you certainly couldn't call it national and so it's about eighteen twelve that you get the rise of modern printing um, and then the war of eighteen twelve was the was for the u s the first conflict as a nation, the first war as a nation and so this was a kind of this the war of eighteen twelve kind of brought America together, and I argue that that created a kind of shared popular culture and so it's it's that 's really the watershed I think for the formation of a kind of national popular culture and From that point on, you can talk about popular culture and music, a broadly shared popular culture with with um, kind of shared tastes, shared reference points in the music, this kind of thing. And part of my argument is to say that um, in the book that really pop music was the first national media. It was the first medium for sharing um, uh, ideas and for bringing people together as a kind of into a kind of national identity in America. So, um, yeah, the war, yeah, 1812, I think, is pretty much the starting point for popular culture in America.
0: Okay, Okay. I I find this whole topic fascinating because I have to be honest until I saw the title I hadn't thought of there being such a thing as pop music in American culture um, in the 1800s we don't have um, we don't have phonographs we don't have radio we don't have all of those kinds of things the idea of a literary musical pop culture had never occurred to me so can you give me a sense what kinds of of music is being presented here and and how is this being disseminated are there um you know like regional presses that are that are driving sort of this is there clearing houses because i i can't even think in the in the early 1800s do we even have mass market catalogs yet so so how does this sort of propagate
2: uh yeah that's a good question the um you know, that's, that was one of my goals was to write about music uh, before there were any recordings because this is, uh, when you're looking at music at that point where it's not really, people don't know much about it, um, and so that music, you can talk about popular music there, but you're, you're not talking about kind of the radio, phonographs, this kind of thing. So the primary uh, medium for the music would have been sheet music. Um, which was, you had at that point not a whole lot of publishing houses, but New York City, Boston, Philadelphia um, would have had their presses that are kind of churning out these songbooks and sheet music. And what's amazing is just kind of how much they produced. Um, You would see um, this sheet music showing up in the houses of people, uh, pretty much middle-class types. Um, pretty much everywhere. And you can kind of go and see And something like the Library of Congress uh, website, for example. They have entire collections of sheet music from this period in uh, the early 19th century. And then by the time you get into about the 1840s, 1850s, then you start to see the development of kind of national music publications, clearinghouses, houses like Root, Root and Katie um, Music House in Chicago uh, was one of the biggest, and they, they actually did very well. Um, really, they got going pretty much with the Civil War. They became very popular in the Civil War with um, shared music and people kind of getting together in the Civil War and singing these songs. But also, Root and Katie had a, a, a side business where they would publish people's songs for a fee and so uh, it was kind of a, uh, a vanity press for songwriters. So there was actually a pretty big business for pop music in the 19th century, even before, well before phonographs and, and obviously before radio.
1: Okay, my question I think is going to kind of bridge the two topics, because when I saw this, I was taught years ago that, um, that yes, the, the music, the pop music actually was out there, but the guy who was the first person to kind of bridge it was Stephen Foster. Uh, and Stephen Mm -hmm. Foster was born in 1826. He was not musically trained. He was definitely not a Brahmin from the upper higher, uh, uh, echelons of American society. And he grew up pretty poor. And if I recall, he had roots with black American music and he was the first guy, if I recall, to really make a market in the sheet music business because he p- produced a ton of songs that were considered pop. And he took his influence from the cultures that he was went from to inspire his music.
2: So uh, yeah. Uh, well, some of that, I mean, I, I think the story of Stephen Foster, um, first of all, Foster was uh, not really... Working class in his background. Now there were previous blackface performers and blackface um, people who wrote blackface songs, um, which P- Foster pro- partly did. I mean, that was part of his part of his work was writing uh, blackface songs. Um, but Foster came from the rising middle class, and so in the 1840s, you know, the middle class is kind of coming to its own as a kind of group in America, um, and they would end up kind of dominating the tastes in America, this kind of thing. And so Foster uh, came from a family with pretty good po- political co- connections in um, okay. Allegheny, in Allegheny um, Pennsylvania. And so his father was a, a well, pretty well-off politician, and then Foster grew up, um, was pretty well-educated, and then ended up working as a, a clerk in a counting house. So definitely a kind of middle-class background. And his, his uh, connection with black music really, as far as I can tell in my research, came from his connection to blackface minstrelsy. So it wasn't a direct connection with black people, black music. It was okay. more kind of he was interested in doing blackface songs because those were the most popular songs at that point. And so in his early career, um, where he made it big was in songs like Oh Susanna, Camp Town Races. and those songs really reflect the kind of blackface part of his career. And he he really became famous writing these type of songs. He was actually worried, though, that he would be kind of... um, He would end up being of as a kind of vulgarian with his music, because blackface was kind of a vulgar type of music, and so he wanted to, or he thought about publishing um, anonymously, but then he realized that um, he could take blackface and try to make it more middle class, and so with his songs, you see these very, early on you see these very um, energetic, lively blackface songs, which were like the blackface of the time, and then Uh, the genius of Foster was to take that and then start to kind of make his songs a little bit more um, refined. And then you get songs like Old Uncle Ned and uh, The the Old Folks at Home, um, which, you know, he has the line way down on the Swanee River, that kind of thing. And so uh, these were kind of sentimental, middle-class songs where they all tend to focus on uh, black characters as these kind of nostalgic figures, right, where you you can listen to the song and kind of dream of a better place in the past. And that okay. past was the past of the kind of this imagined kind of gone-with-the-wind type South um, mm. that didn't really exist, but it no, was it extremely popular. It was extremely popular, especially with white, middle-class people of the time. So Foster right. really is kind of a bridge. To me, Foster is a bridge between early blackface, which is a very working-class, white working-class phenomenon, to um, kind of later blackface, mid-19th century blackface, when it became a much more middle-class uh, genre of music. And, and it continued to be popular with working classes, but it. It really kind of took off at that point and became America's music.
1: Okay. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
3: In times of joy, in moments of grief. Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television. Reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station.
0: Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords.
1: My name is John Keely. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Brian Roberts, Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, and we're talking about his book, Blackface Nation, Race, Reform, and Identity in American Popular Music, 1812 to 1925. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Rick, since you were an accomplished musician in the Centerville Band, a high school band, you yourself get the first question.
3: And I have sold no records since that time. So thank you, John.
1: You still got the letter, right? <laughs>
3: I still yes, I do. I still have my instrument somewhere in the garage. <laughs> Ryan, I'm I'm curious. Uh, I'm reading a book by uh, Dorothy uh, Schweiter called Iowa: The Middle, the Middle Land, and it, uh, uh, although it's it's focusing obviously on Iowa history um she she writes about uh uh deep seated racism uh uh almost tribalism between whites and and african americans and uh so Iowa not necessarily being the barometer for the entire nation it strikes me that you know why would aspiring middle class people want to uh appear as an african American and sing songs, what you know uh, you mentioned earlier that it was considered potentially a vulgar type of music, but why why did the white folks uh, paint their face black and and sing uh, uh, these earthy minstrel type songs
2: uh, yeah that's a that's a great question, and you know I think it really gets to the heart of American identity. Um, In the early part of my book, the first couple of chapters really get into the past, the music before the rise of blackface. Um, And this music, uh, what you really see in the music is kind of uh, these traditions, again, in conflict, where you have kind of uh, a version of patriotism, uh arising in the United States, based on republicanism, this idea of good citizenship and informed uh, voter, informed voters, uh, and this kind of thing, where you have the responsibility uh, that citizens have in a democracy. Uh, in in contrast to that, you also have another version of patriotism that hasn't been talked about by many historians, which is. A uh, uh, patriotism based on the conscious embrace of vulgarity as an American as the the core of American identity, and the key there is kind of vulgarity is this American vulgarity is this statement of democratic egalitarianism and, and we see it all around us even today in today 's politics. What you see is this kind of idea that in America, even no matter who you are or how, uh, let's say, uneducated, how common you are, you still count as a full citizen. And so a lot of the music in America, uh, early music, stressed this idea that um, to be a real American, you have to get in touch with your kind of earthy, authentic side, and so this explains why in, in America, even the middle class could never get away from this. As you, as you kind of become more refined in America, the idea is you become you lose touch with your authentic self, and you become more feminized, this kind of thing. And so the middle class has been seen as kind of feminized, overly intellectual, and possibly a little bit phony, whereas the, the kind of common folk whether they're working class or African-American, would be seen as closer to the American ideal of common people. And so this is what, it, what explains, I think, the attraction. Um, even for rich people, they always want to kind of express themselves, at least occasionally, in this way where they're um, expressing their kind of inner self, the inner vulgar Uh, uncorrupted (laughs) self that's authentic and so you know politicians who can play on that do very well in America and politicians who who can't do that kind of thing who can't get in touch uh, I call it actually in my in the book I call it getting in touch literally with your dark side and so your dark side can be portrayed on the stage literally through black makeup where you are then, you're white, but you're performing a kind of, um, like I say, authentic version of yourself. And, and being, black, in, in being black, you can also let go of all of the things that you have to repress as a white person. You can now, you have a corridor for your appetites, your passions. Uh, and so blackface works really well with a culture of consumerism. Uh, you know, the, the idea is that whiteness is all about repression. Blackness is all about giving in to any desire. And so we kind of encode this kind of these racial distinctions within our culture in almost every way.
0: All right. Ed?
3: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Roberts, uh, let's go um, post-Civil War. Um was this the music that we're talking about? was that exclusively the province of whites, or did it find its way into the freed black communities in the south and what
2: the small freed black um enclaves in the north uh yeah i mean it it did blackface part of my argument is is that blackface was it it was enormously popular. Uh, and so it had an effect on black people, and that 's something that um, really i, I don 't think people have paid that much attention to it. One thing is that you know strangely enough i mean i I make the argument that it was a type of racism, and i I say you know that blackface shows that his, that racism in America has a, a history. And this type of racism was not a racism of race hatred. Uh, It was definitely, I say, a racism of attraction, of love. And so white people really loved black people and they could express this love in blackface, but they loved them as long as they were expressive and they stayed kind of low in their expressions. What they didn't like is kind of black people who, who were kind of rising up to become middle class. Now, that type of racism, I say, created opportunities for black people. And there's a point, a long period in time in American history where if you're black in America, you can't express yourself as a middle class person. And there were plenty of black middle class, black members of the middle class. uh, But they couldn't express themselves that way. They had to express themselves according to the standards of blackface minstrelsy. So blackface actually created opportunities for black people to go onto the stage and perform. The problem is they had to perform according to the standards of blackface. So by by the mid middle decades of the uh, 19th century, even in the 1840s, you start to see black people doing blackface minstrelsy. So they're not white people in black makeup now. It's actual black people. And they, they did wear makeup, and, of course, they wore the kind of minstrel show regalia. Um, and that continued in, through the 19th century, uh, and I think well into the 20th century. You have extremely, uh, some ex- very popular black entertainers uh, rising up, performing in black uh, blackface minstrel uh, shows, and then some of them were able to kind of move from there into more of more music without the blackface, um, that kind of thing. Um, people like James Bland, who ended up becoming, he started out as a blackface, blackface performer uh, and ended up becoming very, very much a kind of um, Tin Pan Alley type uh, song performer where it was very commercial music. And so um, it did. Life has provided, I think, opportunities for black people and as long as they were willing to kind of perform within the genre.
0: John, why don't you ask the next question?
2: Okay. Um, when
1: dealing with the uh, let's let's um, look at the tail end of this. Uh, you've got till 1925. Well, there is uh, after World War One. Jazz is. Um, Making the scene and being part of the Harlem Renaissance revolution, uh, how mm-hmm. did this um, either combat, blend, uh, overshine uh, you're talking about the uh, identity of American popular music
2: uh, well the way the way I talk about um, the Harlem Renaissance is kind of where i I finish up my analysis. Uh, And basically, I think, you know, one of my favorite stories from the Harlem Renaissance is that, um, you know, you have Paul Robeson by the Harlem Renaissance was performing. uh, He was performing as a fellow, I think, and several other roles uh, on Broadway and was enormously popular. And you had... Yeah. With white audiences. So by this time you have a lot of, uh, black performers who had become extremely popular with white audiences. These included people like uh, Duke Ellington and even Louis Armstrong. And, um, the, the key issue there though, for me is at the same time they're doing this. I mean, there was, I have one story where I talk about Paul Robson performing on Broadway, receiving a standing ovation, uh, and just basking in this enormous popularity that he had. And then the same night that he had that uh, elevation, he tried to eat with a, a group of friends of his in a downtown cafe and was denied service for being black. So what you have by the um, middle ha- of the Harlem Renaissance, you have this kind of case where you have the enormous popularity of black individuals in the music scene um, they're more popular than, than ever, but racism seemed to also become more power, powerful than ever.
0: So mm-hmm. we're talking
2: about the 1920s. 1920s, you also had, while the Harlem Renaissance was going on, you, you had the Ku Klux Klan as the most, it was the most uh, popular social fraternity in the United States in the 1920s. So it's, it's just one of these kind of conundrums that you get in American history. Why is it that black black people were becoming more and more popular, while racism was also becoming more more and more kind of a dominant strain in American
0: culture? Okay. All right. It is. Co- yeah, go ahead, John.
1: Okay, we will come back and wrap things up, please, so stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. you're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for Excellence in Public Affairs Journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes the 380th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker, our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, and was written and performed by Mark Zap My name is Jay Swords.
1: My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa, who talked with us about the book of Blackface Nation, Race, Reform, and Identity in American Popular Music. 1812 to 1925 The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant on KALA The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb Hozo nala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember Historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.